with Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 209 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and last week I was treated to epic hay fever and also what I'm going to euphemistically phrase trouble in tummy town because that's what everyone wants when they sneeze. <gasps> Jeopardy. <laughs> oh Mick. Yeah. Oh God. I mean I have Jeopardy when I sneeze for very different <laughs> reasons but um if that reason's not bum water, Jen, then I'm not interested. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what am I to follow that up with? I just, I can't. I can't. I'm Jen Offord and I'm wondering, do terrible teas last for the whole year? Asking for myself, please send messages of hope and solidarity. Thank you. Oh, I send you much hope and love and solidarity and, you know, the knowledge that she's really cute and that will see you through this. But I also think the Terrible Twos is quite famously misnamed, isn't it? Because it, it does stretch a bit. Sorry. No! <laughs> I think you just no. get used to it, though, so it becomes less awful. <laughs> so by the time you hit the Terrible Teens, you'll be fine. If you take something off her, she will be like a spoon or something like that. Something really interesting, like a spoon. She'll be like, have it, have it, have it. <laughs> She'll shout after you. And you have to say, no, have it, no, have it, no. Why don't you want your daughter to have a spoon, Jen? What's wrong with you? Oh, it won't necessarily be a spoon. It'll be, it'll be something like not very interesting that for whatever. I don't know. She's finished dinner. And you're like, I'm going to take that spoon away and wash it. No, it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to her. She wants that spoon. Yeah, I think I'm on Lyra's but side just let her I can't believe spoon. you're removing just spoons from her. Spoon. Seems outrageous. I think maybe, Jen, you need to look in the mirror and have a stern talking to yourself. <laughs> I think this is going to become a bit like... Do you remember the time I let her take a biscuit in the bath with her? Because it was just the easiest thing to do. <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of biscuits in the bath, is what I'm saying, over the next, like, six months or so. And I'm just going to have to get used to that. Yeah, yeah. My friend Karen, who has a little boy, uh, his thing was taking a ball into the bath to make him have a bath. And she once sent me a photo. <laughs> Sorry. And he was in the bath with nine different balls. <laughs> <laughs> various shapes and sizes it was hilarious (laughs) oh wow later on i catch up with everyone's favorite tory mp rosie holt who of course isn't actually a tory mp but is in fact a brilliant actor comedian satirist and social media sensation doing uncanny skits of some of the very worst people I chat to brilliant comedian and author Laura Lex about her new book, Pivot. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm chatting game, set and match. It's Wimbledon, of course. Grab your spoons, Lyra, for the strawberries and cream. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no fresh rated or dated this week, but a little reminder, should you want to join in, that next week we're watching The Road to Perdition. But now, America, Russia and Tiverton. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Screaming pillows at the ready. Oh, hell yeah. It'll come as no surprise that I'm going to talk about America and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case in which the court ruled that the Constitution protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. A ruling that was never enshrined in law, which is key, because on Friday that constitutional protection was removed by the US Supreme Court. 
And that too came as no surprise. Fears around a weakening or wholesale reversal of Roe v. Wade have been a near constant since, well, since Roe v. Wade back in 1973. Not that this makes Friday's ruling any less devastating for women and people who can get pregnant. Okay, a small but I think related tangent. I've initially used the phrase women and people who can get pregnant there because obviously people observed female at birth who identify as trans or non-binary can also get pregnant. But from now on, I'm going to be using the shorthand women to encapsulate all of those. Not least because it is women who will be disproportionately affected by this. Just an additional note on inclusive language. People seems pretty friendly, right? Women, trans men and non-binary people are all people. But people can easily obfuscate and confuse who is targeted and who is doing the targeting. Just see ACLU's 2021 failed bastardisation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's famous quote supporting women's right to safe abortion access for proof. And reducing women to our body parts, womb carrier was one I've seen recently, makes it so much easier for an already hostile state, government or, you know, Supreme Court to treat women as not entirely human. Because this brutal striking down of Roe v. Wade is not about saving the lives of unborn children. It is about denying women bodily autonomy and therefore controlling them. Hooked as it is on one document from the 1700s, a time when women and people of colour were not seen as fully human and delivered now, a time when women's rights appear to be seen as mere fripperies. Now, you might disagree with me on aspects of what I've just said, and it is absolutely your freedom of belief to do so. I support that. Clearly, human beings do not agree on everything, and I think that's okay. I think you're a Nazi. Well, sorry, Jen, you are free to believe that. I support <laughs> your freedom to believe that. I don't think you're a Nazi. And yet, even the people who believe abortion is wrong, that too is their freedom of belief. And they do not have to have an abortion if they don't want to. Because that's the thing with abortion access. It's the option of an option. It is not compulsory. So our Hannah's currently in New York. I mean, hopefully sorting all of this shit out. But we had a chat before she went. I told her I'd be covering this for BT. And she said, good luck in keeping it under an hour. And she's right. There is a lot to talk about. And also, we have talked about it all so, so, so many times before. In fact, in 2018, as Ireland got ready to vote re-repealing the Eighth Amendment, an amendment that was effectively a blanket ban on abortion, we made a two-part docupod about abortion rights, and I'd like to direct you to that now. Everything we cover in there about why it's key for women to have safe access to abortions explains why it's so barbaric that women in America have just had that access swiped from them. More on Ireland later, by the way. So the key point, I guess, about this is you cannot ban abortions. You can only ban safe abortions. Banning abortion does not result in fewer abortions, but it does result in more women and girls dying. Both those desperately seeking unsafe abortions and those who develop complications in their pregnancy but can't access the healthcare they need because anti-abortion laws mean doctors won't treat them. And that applies also to women who just happen to be visiting America when this happens to them. So where does America stand now? Abortion hasn't automatically become illegal in the US, but individual states are now allowed to decide if and how to allow abortions. Many states had already passed trigger laws that came into effect upon Roe v. Wade being overturned. Others had left old laws on the books that banned abortion prior to 1973, and they could now go back into force. More than 20 states are making moves to limit access to abortion, 
and it's estimated that 33.6 million reproductive age women are now at risk of losing access to safe abortion. Many women who live in these states will be unable to travel for safe abortion care, and it will be poorer women who feel the most direct impact of restrictive abortion laws. In fact, in the US, half of women seeking a safe abortion live below the poverty line. It's also important to note that the US has the worst maternal mortality rate of any developed country. And what's mm. more, unlike everywhere else in the world, it is actually increasing. Add to that the fact that the US is one of only six countries in the world without national paid leave. That's maternity, paternity or caring for sick children. And actually, access to childcare is practically non-existent anyway. Finally, what's just happened to Roe v. Wade raises questions. Why, across any of three democratic presidencies, wasn't it codified? Well, too long don't read. It would have taken a fair amount of effort and cash and not Clinton, nor Obama, nor Biden could be fucked. Also, what is next? The Supreme Court looks likely to reconsider Griswold, Lawrence and Obergefell. They are the rulings that currently protect contraception, same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. It's pretty frightening. Mm. I imagine you, like me, are itching to do something, anything. Here's what you can do. Donate to an abortion fund. Abortionfunds.org is a good place to look where to put your cash. Share why you fight for abortion access with the hashtag, hashtag whatever the reason. One of the key reasons Ireland repealed the 8th is because so many women shared their stories. And you can add your name to BPAS's open letter calling on our government to condemn recent developments in the US and commit to protecting and furthering reproductive rights in the UK. I'll share the link in the show notes and I will retweet it from at Standard Issue UK. I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't have much to add. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's just terrible. I felt really sad and sick yeah. and angry all weekend and like continuing... It is sad, and and I, I guess the thing I would say, and it obviously it absolutely does predominantly affect women, but it does affect men too, mm-hmm. and it's you know like this this is this is just shit. This is a bad idea for everyone, for everyone. Also, I would just ask, I wonder, or pose the question: How many men <laughs> in all the legislative bodies? across the United States of America that are now doing this. I wonder how many of them have had women have abortions in their time. It's an excellent question. Who knows? Is that... I don't think that's libelous, is it? No. Just wonder. All right, Meg, I'd like to take you on a little trip to Tory Town now, if you'd like. Uh, sorry, if not if you'd like. You definitely wouldn't <laughs> like, if that's okay. I'm not sure that's a yes either, but... <laughs> it's a bit like Funky Town. If Funky Town were a blazing pile of excrement smeared with the remnants of frosted icing from a Tupperware box and doused in £6.99 Prosecco from the Tesco <laughs> Metro on Whitehall. We're going to take a couple of detours via Wakefield up in Yorkshire and Tiverton and Honiton down in Devon, where, unless you've been hiding under a rock, just to be clear, that is the whole of England basically covered. But (laughs) anyway, so unless you've been hiding under a rock, you'll know that the Tory candidates in these two constituencies were obliterated in by-elections last week. In Wakefield, where Labour took the seat from the Conservatives, the Tory share of the vote was down by 17.3%. And in True Blue, Tiverton and Honiton, where the Lib Dems were victorious, the Tories lost a massive 21.8% of the votes. Q 
Phew, high-profile resignation. <laughs> Looks like shit got a bit too real for party co-chair Oliver Dowden, who, in a letter to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, said, Somebody must take responsibility, and I have concluded that, in these circumstances, it would not be right for me to remain in office. Burn. <laughs> I guess he's come to a slightly different conclusion to the one he put forward publicly back in April, in which he said the public needed to balance, that's a quote, their anger over Partygate against another quote, all the really good things he has done. Like, uh, he said, Brexit. It's clutching at straws there, isn't it? I mean... It's not even done if you look at the news (laughs) today. There's people, like, fucking changing the agreement all over the place anyway. So it seems there is nothing that puts the wind up a Tory like an angry pensioner, along with some other more (laughs) libelous things which I'll keep to myself. The Sunday Times reported at the weekend that more than 30 MPs had submitted letters to the 1922 committee demanding another confidence vote. Not another one! (laughs) They can't... I don't know what that was. That was weird. Not another one! Whoop, whoop. That's not even how she... I don't know. Fuck it. That'll do. (laughs) They can't anyway, can they? Because Christmas comes but once a year, surely. Well, with apparently at least six Tory MPs ready to defect to Labour, these guys want to change their own party rules to better suit them. Still, that is what most Tories do, right? Don't like the rules? Do what the fuck you want. The world is yours, after all. When you said that, Jen, it's like the apocalypse has started and there was a huge clap of thunder that came through my window. <laughs> Six Tory MPs ready to defect to Labour. Amazing. Let's keep that in in the edit. (laughs) So what does the Prime Minister think of this bruising defeat? Another quote. Not brilliant, he says, (laughs) but he's not going to change because he's fine just the way Mm. he is. As a leader, you have to try to distinguish between the criticism that really matters and the criticism that doesn't. Now... Apparently, things that don't matter include being accused of lying to the public, being accused of misleading Parliament, being accused of corruption, losing the support of 41% of your own MPs, and, of course, lying to the Queen. It doesn't look great, does it, Mick? It doesn't, Jen. I'd go so far as to say that it it stinks more than a puddle of stagnant bum water. (laughs) Always with the bum water. Uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's fucking awful. What the fuck is going on? I feel, sadly, we could apply that to so many areas of the world and the news right now. We could. So would you like some good news, Mick? Is there any good news, Jen? Yeah, kind of. I mean... (laughs) So despite being pretty consistently the top story on most news websites, it feels a bit like Russia's war on Ukraine has taken something of a backseat news-wise. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I do. I, I feel like that, but maybe maybe that's just me. Perhaps we're desensitised to it, or the stories of horror coming out of it, or perhaps our terrible government gives us plenty of other news to wring our hands over. Indeed. Alas, it does continue, and it's still pretty fucking awful for the people living through it. But I did promise you good news, and while it's pretty slim pickings out there, <laughs> a little round of applause for Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov, please, who has auctioned his Nobel Peace Prize to raise money for people displaced by the invasion. And another round of applause for the anonymous buyer who bid $103.5 million for the privilege of owning this item. Wowzers. Yeah. 
The previous record for the sale of a Nobel Prize at auction was $4.76 million. So that's quite a lot of money for a good cause, right? I mean, we could debate whether someone should have $103.5 million lying around just to spend on stuff but let's not it's it's a good it's good news it's good news guys good it news. is good news i guess the other debate we could have is like why would and i'm very pleased that this person has given all that money to an mm. excellent cause but why would you want someone else's peace prize it does sort of reek of i've got loads of money to feel important doesn't it but anyway fuck it they gave it to charity good for them <laughs> yeah, well for done them. them this is good news uh if you'd like to chip in a few quid probably quite a few less than the anonymous buyer but oh. every little helps you can do so <laughs> via unicef www.unicef.org.uk or the red cross donate.redcross.org forward slash ukraine forward slash donate I'm sad to report there will be more news next week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, obviously, sexism doesn't just reside in America. And I'm sorry if you've had enough abortion chat for one Bush Telegraph, because I'm coming at you with some more. Because while what happens in America tends to have repercussions abroad for generations, there's already shit going down closer to home. So yeah, let's look at the UK, where safe abortion access is enshrined in criminal law. The 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, to be exact, when it should be enshrined in healthcare. Yep, that's right. Abortion is still technically a crime in the UK. Mm-hmm. But the 1967 Abortion Act carved out a few exemptions, which is why abortion is allowed where women and doctors meet certain requirements up to 24 weeks into a pregnancy. Doesn't feel too solid, though, does it? Hmm. And of course, that 1967 tweak didn't extend to Northern Ireland until October 2019. I'm thinking, Jen, we can just save up our, for fuck's sakes, until the end for one almighty chorus. If that's okay. Great. Mm -hmm. It may not surprise you to learn that since October 2019, Northern Ireland hasn't really gone full tilt on providing access to the safe abortions its residents are now legally allowed access to. In fact... The government has failed to fully commission services, meaning that abortion is being provided on an ad hoc basis by health trusts in Northern Ireland. And yeah, yeah, COVID happened, but a pandemic didn't stop people fucking, which remains the leading cause of pregnancies. And it's not just women from Northern Ireland who are still having to travel. And we all know that COVID absolutely did affect travel. Scotland also has a pretty damaging postcode lottery when it comes to access to second trimester abortions, since no health board in Scotland, not one, provides abortion care up to the long-standing legal limit of 24 weeks. And what of our neighbour, Ireland, which successfully and overwhelmingly voted to repeal the 8th back in 2018? Statistics released by the UK government in June show 775 Irish residents have been forced to travel for abortion care since the abortion legislation was introduced in Ireland. Why? The 12-week gestational limit is contrary to best international practice and inhibits women's access to care, says Alana Ryan, the National Women's Council Women's Health Coordinator. So, after three, Jen? One, two, three. For For fuck's fuck's sake. sake. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by actor, comedian, social media sensation, and certainly one of my favourite follows on Twitter, Rosie Holt. Rosie, hello. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Have I actually got Rosie today? Is this correct? This this is this is the real Rosie Holt, apparently. <laughs> I don't I don't know whether to believe you. We'll see we'll see how the answers come. I guess first question, how does it feel being a social media sensation? Oh god, I don't know. I mean it's it's very nice. It's a bit um it's a bit surreal because yeah, yeah, it all happened online. So when when people start coming up to you in the street, you feel it's just a, it's a bit strange. It takes a while to get your head around it, I think. Are there Rosie Holt groupies now? Are you getting approached I in don't, the street? I don't think I've got Rosie Holt groupies. <laughs> they, they're usually just very nice people who come up and go, oh, are you, you're that woman off Twitter. And I go, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. Don't follow me home. Please, can you tell any listeners who might not be aware of what I'm going to term the Rosie Holt experience a bit about the characters you inhabit on social media? The one that I'm probably most known for is impersonating a Tory MP. And I usually splice myself into existing interviews with people like Kay Burley or or, or um, Dan Walker or things like that. And it's sort of poking fun at the way these MPs uh, will defend the indefensible and give some crazy excuse for something. And it, look, it, it always, look, always to me it looks like they're thinking on their feet. So it's a funny thing to parody. Yeah. I mean, thinking seems quite generous there, but we'll go with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Rosie, I'd like to say you make Twitter a more positive place, but I have seen some of the responses to your videos. So, well, uh, what I will say is you definitely make it a much more enjoyable place. But what are the ratios when it comes to people getting what you're doing? It depends. I'd like to say that now most people get it but there is definitely always very vocal uh maybe minority (laughs) of people who think that I'm really a Tory MP and get very angry but I mean that's that's always how before I was doing the Tory MP I started doing this character who I now have in a podcast who was just a sort of kind of shock jock opinionist you'd give terrible opinions and people would think she was real as well and go who is this appalling woman but you get people cheering you on who think you're real as well uh, what you mean? I do you know what I don't luckily I had one person very sweetly uh defend my MP and say look she's trying her best it's really hard for these guys <laughs> they come on they have to talk about subjects they don't know much about it was really sweet I couldn't I couldn't, I couldn't take much issue with it <laughs> But luckily, I don't. I haven't really had any. Yeah, this this woman is speaking sense. Yeah, I yet. mean, I bet a lot of people are just nodding and agreeing, though. Sadly, because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be in the situation we're in politically. I guess. I agree. I mean, I hope what I do is I try not to just parrot what these people say and kind of expose that what they're saying is ridiculous. So my hope is that no one, unless they're really stupid, is going to be listening to it, going, "Oh, she makes some." excellent points hopefully even people think it's real it exposes the fact that their point of view is completely well not even point of view point of view that they're they're told to parrot is is completely ridiculous yeah not someone going finally someone telling the truth about positive (laughs) people trafficking yeah yeah so one of my favorite sketches of yours is called why you should never change your opinion chef's kiss yeah and I think the lack of or loss of nuance in how people deal with each other on social media has been a real boon for Rosie Holt yeah no I I, I'm glad you like that one 
I do think we've become very tribal, haven't we? Mm-hmm. And uh, and there isn't much room for nuance. And people um, get. I mean, I've got in trouble. I mean, the most trolling I've got on Twitter is from the left, who get angry if they feel that I am not left enough in some way, or I've said an opinion that doesn't fit with with what they perceive as a left winger. And the stuff I get in response is insane. It's sort of like, oh, so you're a right-wing authoritarian. Yeah, yeah. there's two choices, and I, Rosie. <laughs> and there's two choices. It's going, oh, wait, well, you don't think this? Well, then clearly you're with them, um, which I think is quite alarming. And I think it kind of, um, you can see it reflected all around now. I mean, the fact that on, on programmes like Jeremy Vine, often what they'll do is they'll get two people on opposing sides. So they'll find someone whose who's point you may broadly agree with, but they, they pick the most ridiculous extreme version of that mm-hmm. person. It's, it's, it's not really about trying to find common ground. It's, it's sort of a battling two rather insane positions against each other. I do think we've kind of lost the art of just, I don't know, talking things through, trying to find nuance and common ground. Oh, I totally agree with you. It's totally gladiatorial. Gladiatorial. Russell (laughs) Crowish. In the way that people are pitted against each other, but also the way people choose to pit themselves against each other instead of going, this is a fellow human. I bet there's sort of some overlap in our Venn diagram. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like like the Russell (laughs) Crowish. The Crow analogy. Who doesn't like Russell Crowe? Anyway, we're off topic. You make it look very, very easy, but there is clearly loads of research that goes into your sketches uh, and contrary to a lot of actual journalism at the moment, as well as opinion, you put in some facts and everything, which is astonishing. How hard is it to strike that balance? Um, Yeah, I I definitely try and, especially if I'm talking about a topic I don't know anything about, I definitely try and research it quite a bit beforehand because it doesn't matter if my characters are spouting complete lies. As long as I know where the truth is and I can kind of reveal that in in the shape of the Mm -hmm. video. But yeah, I definitely think the the uh, fact facts is is sort of often omitted for, from certain <laughs> certain journalistic uh, things at the moment. Yeah, especially on things like GB News or Talk Radio, it's a lot of presenters omitting the facts to present a, a particular narrative. Exactly, uh, which is quite it's quite dangerous, really, isn't it? It's fake news. It's fake news. I mean, it's not helped anyone into huge power or any... Oh, wait, no. No, it totally has. It's incredibly (laughs) dangerous. How long does it take to think up, write, research, probably the other way around, research, then write and record a two-minute sketch? Coming up with it is usually quite quick because I feel like I have to be quite reactive. So if there's a big news story, sometimes what I'll do is I'll wait till the following morning when there's all the news rounds and all these MPs are trotted out to to give their opinion. And those usually give me enough inspiration to write something quite quickly. So I have got quite quick at writing things down. I think to begin with, it took me a lot longer. The editing's a bit of an arse. That sort of takes a while and I'm not (laughs) the best at it. I've got a friend who's an editor who always goes, oh your your editing skills is really poor like oh well people still believe it this is fine i think your editing skills are cracking uh coming from someone else who learns it on a steep learning curve of learning to edit yeah all of this or a lot of this social media sensation came out sort of by accident is that right yeah 
Yeah, I mean, um, so I'm, I'm an act. I, you know, I'm an actor and comedian. It wasn't like I was sort of just doing something completely <laughs> alien. But it had started in lockdown. So before before lockdown, I was about to do a, a tour of the Crown Jewel, which was a very silly parody, very funny parody written by Dan Clarkson of Netflix, The Crown. It was me, one other actor, Brendan Murphy, and we played all the roles of sort of the Queen, Princess Margaret, Corgis, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were just about to take that on a six month tour and then the pandemic happened so that all fell through so I was I sort of gone off to Somerset where my parents live for lockdown one and um, was going a bit mad like everyone else and then it was during the Black Lives Matter protests and people getting very irate about about statues that I thought oh I'll just I'll just post a video mimicking some of these views that I'm reading online and it kind of went crazy from there uh, you do still have that statue of Stalin by your pond though right of course yeah pride of place <laughs> fish, fishes love it it's hard to pick a favorite but that is another absolute corker do you feel any sort of sympathy for the people you're parodying um it's a good question do I feel any sympathy for them because I'd say I'm quite an empathetic person. It's why I'd never want to meet any of them, actually. I'd worry that I'd <laughs> like them and then not feel like I could parody them anymore. Um, I I don't know. I do in respect. I used to feel quite sorry during the pandemic for Matt Hancock because he'd sort of, I felt like he was wheeled out. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he's dreadful. <laughs> but I felt like he, just the the, the fact that he, he was wheeled out to def- defend these these terrible things and this complete ineptitude and he always looked like he was trying to back away from himself didn't it yes he did he it was so painful to watch so I couldn't help feel a bit sympathetic that said I think it's so appalling I mean people talk about the government oh you know they're laughing at us and they're gaslighting us and and usually I hate that sort of hyperbole, but actually I think that's true. It, it does feel like that. I mean, the thing that made me so angry about Partygate was it was like they were treating us all like we were stupid. Yeah. Just going out firstly, going, oh no, there was there was no parties. Then when it emerged, it was they're going, oh, what what's the big deal? It was just it was just a little it was just a little cake that got ambushed on the prime minister. It was so insulting, yeah. and especially after the sacrifices that everyone had made. So I. I guess I don't have... That was a very rambling way of going, yeah, have something. No, no, no something. I like that you thought it through while talking. I was like, <laughs> no, they're, they're awful. They're, they deserve everything they get. <laughs> so you touched on this earlier, but one of your characters has recently got her own podcast, Non-Censored. Yes. She's called Harriet Langley Swindon. I won't name who she's based on. I'll just very maturely say it rhymes with muley, farty, poor. Tell us why... Shock Jock Harriet got her own show and what she's doing with it. Um, so I, I wanted to do this for ages because uh, she, she was the character that first kind of got me my following. And I based her on, you know, various uh, shock jocks and opinionists and sure. people who just kind of, <laughs> as you say, you're right, yes, certain, certain, certain people who will not be lame. And um, I wanted, uh, me and uh, my friend Brendan, who's also in the podcast, came up with this idea of parodying things like talk radio and these stations that are very reactive and provocative and take have someone from the left on and then just sort of shout at them and go, wow, well, I owned them. And all those, all those <laughs> yeah. kind, of, these kind of mad features they have, like woke watch. And it just seemed to me ripe for parody. 
So the the podcast is sort of highlights of Harriet's radio show, which is not a real show. And so she goes, oh, now we're looking at the, the week's highlights and we have brilliant comedy performers playing various people. But then we also have a serious guest every week who plays it straight. So we had James O'Brien in the first one and Dom, Dom Jolly. And I re- recorded one with Owen Jones the other day, which was really fun. And they play it straight. And then Harriet just asks them appalling questions. And it's very fun. What I think is a really beautiful observation and done really well in in the podcast is Martin, the producer, is massively uncomfortable (laughs) with Harriet. He's like, I I disagree with everything you say, but this is a job. And he just sort of has to work out how to go along with it while still going, "Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Well, yeah, I think it's because I, you know, I've met a few people who work at these stations and they're usually sort of either centrist or lefties because they, they, they work in TV and radio and most <laughs> people are. So they're all going, oh, I just need to pay the mortgage. So we thought that dynamic was just really funny. It is, um, it is. Because <laughs> someone who feels they're slightly selling their soul and just uh, is panicked that they're crossing the line all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. It was already like number two in the charts before it had even broadcast. Yeah, it was really mad. I don't I don't really understand how that happened. I mean hopefully it's early days, hopefully it will will continue to do well. We'll we'll see. But it's certainly great to do it. We're recording recording this week's one today, and then it'll go out tomorrow. So. Oh, so it's fast, it's a, a nice fast turnaround. Yeah, because we try and keep it topical. So the the interviews we tend to sort of do a bit before, but Mm -hmm. yeah, in terms of getting things out for the news, we do it the night before. And you're also taking your cast of characters to the Edinburgh Fringe this year, your debut Edinburgh. What can people expect from Rosie Holt, colon, The Woman's Hour? Yeah, so it's um, a number of different characters, the the MP, Harriet Langley-Swindon, but also quite a few others. And the idea is, it's just looking at the current political discourse and all the crazy figures that contribute to that. So not just MPs and shock jocks, but also you know, people like certain TV presenters who maybe present, I, I don't know, property shows and suddenly their <laughs> opinions get kind of elevated onto the internet. So all those, those kind of people. I've done a few previews now and I'm really pleased where, with where it's going. I think it's really fun. It's very silly, but it's hopefully with some serious intent. Well, it's those facts that you put in. So, yes. And it's the facts. <laughs> oh, my God, I miss them. Uh, is it <laughs> is it a totally different vibe doing it in front of live people as opposed to obviously recording and then putting it onto social media? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's... It's lovely as I realised how much I've missed being on stage because it's it's so great. It's so fun getting the audience reaction. And also with comedy, more so than if you're doing a straight play, you can play with the audience reaction a bit. You, know, you, get, you can break character and talk to the audience and that's so fun. And I have Elf Lyons, who's a really good clown. Oh, we performer. love Elf. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. So she's been sort of directing it because... Um, because it, although it's not a clown show, it's great having somebody who's so good at physical comedy and can go, oh, maybe you could open out. Because obviously my internet stuff is very static just mm-hmm. by the nature of what it is. But it, yeah, it's it's very different. But it's it's so much fun. And you can also, you know, I don't like to very rarely put on silly wigs when I do my internet work because I think it just, it makes it obvious that it's your, 
you're doing a parody where it's quite nice in the stage show going I'm going to put on a ridiculous wig now because it's theatre and you can all accept that that's what's going on there are so many Rosie Holt fingers in different pies where can people find you on social media to watch your brilliant videos and also to find out what you're up to so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram on at Rosie is a Holt I think I said is in a weird way Rosie is a Holt <laughs> that's probably the best best way I've to find me I also I've got a website rosieholt.co.uk which I put all my shows that are up- upcoming but yeah Twitter and Instagram really are the best places to find me I don't understand TikTok and I really don't like Facebook so <laughs> stay away from those ones no totally agree I think you've made the right choice there and I can heartily recommend listeners just going to Rosie's pinned tweet at the top of her Twitter page and just watching all of the videos until you're really confused but laughing a lot that's what happened to me <laughs> this morning before this interview <laughs> yes do that Rosie thank you so so much for chatting with me thank you thanks for having me I am joined by comedian, writer and author Laura Lex and also I should say friend of the podcast. Hello Laura, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? Yes, I'm good, thank you. We're here today to talk about Pivot, your new novel. This is obviously your second book. Yeah. And I was just wondering what genre you would put Klopp in is it yeah fiction what 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 are we calling Klopp? definitely fiction i'm not married to jürgen Klopp. (laughs) i think like and people keep saying it to me and then going no offense but i'm like why would that be offensive it's like a toilet book gift book i think okay is what the clock book is because it's a series of like short vignettes is that the right word yeah that's one of those words that i see used and i don't know when you're supposed to use it but like it's it's really (laughs) tiny like chapters anything from a paragraph to a couple of pages kind of a a selection of scenes of like this fictional marriage to the world's most sensible brilliant football manager i'm a big fan of crop but we're not here to talk about that we'll come back (laughs) to it don't worry i just wanted to clarify that pivot is your debut novel yeah Yeah, it is, yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about it, please? So Pivot is the story of Jackie, who is 58. She loves her life. She's uh, a grandma. She was a nurse. She loved being a nurse. Um, She's retired pretty early. Like, let's all aim for retiring at (laughs) (laughs) mid-50s. She retired to help her husband deal with cancer. And then she goes to Dunelm one morning to buy a shoe rack and she comes home to find her husband leaving her. And suddenly all of the things she was go from being brilliant things to things she's done and finished. And what the hell is she doing now? And so via her best friend, Roz, who is determined that she's not going to turn into a puddle on the floor and disappear down the cracks of the floorboards, she starts a netball team and tries to find a gang of other women in the community that also need somewhere to be themselves and they form what's probably the world's worst netball team (laughs) (laughs) and they try and and find a space for themselves dun elm is a is a beautiful detail by the way i'm 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 loving that (laughs) i love a dun elm Although I just found out they're massive Tory donors. And, you know, oh. when you go like, no, next jeans were the only jeans that fitted me and they're massive Tory <laughs> donors. And now Dunelm as well. What am I supposed oh, to do? No. 
why are all the successful businesses conservatives? <laughs> One of the things that I thought was quite interesting about this book is that the main character, the two sort of central characters, and I know there, obviously there is a, a younger character in it as well, and you are a woman in your mid-30s, but you've made the two central characters sort of older women, retired. Yeah. But I wondered why you chose to sort of pitch them in that age range. This is going to sound so wanky, but I feel like I didn't decide who they were. They were just some people, and then I wrote them down. And I don't mean that like my artistic process is like finding these spirits in the wider world. And, but like Jackie just seemed that's who she was. It felt like the things she was going through, she's still a woman. I'm still going to be that person one day. And I felt like maybe that could happen to you at any point in your life where you suddenly wake up and go, God, what am I doing? All my achievements are behind me. But it just felt like that's just who she was in a way. And uh, I think because I originally wrote it for television, I had this idea in my head of this cast of brilliant actresses that, like, could all be in it together. You know, like all of the the, the Alison Stebmans of the world, mm. all in their slightly later years, like, doing it. And I felt like it was a voice maybe I hadn't heard a lot of. I think you don't hear so no. many voices of that sort of age range because women, obviously, as we all know, become completely Spanish, pointless. Yeah. That's the whole dilemma that Jackie's in, really, is that she's there going, well, I've raised my children and I love them, but they don't really need me day to day. And she's got a granddaughter who's just started school, so she's not even, like, needed to be emergency childcare. And there's a lot that she's sort of thinking about of like, you know, she's waking up at 6am on the dot every morning and then going, why wasn't I this bright eyed and bushy tailed when I had toddlers? That would have been great. But now I've got nothing to do. I'm awake every morning going, how shall I fill today? And a bit frustrated with it. And it was like the, this idea of, of what, what do you do? Like, what do you fill your life with? Because I remember sitting with one TV company when it was a sitcom and they said, like, look, yeah, we're just not really trying to make TV for this age range because women over 35 already watch TV. It's the 16 to 25s we're trying to get in. So is there any chance we could make Jackie in her 20s? And I was like, no, like, it's a fascinating story to get divorced in your 20s. That's a whole different story, but it's not the same kind of level of... You've done your whole life with one person. You've had kids, you've had grandkids, you've moved houses, you've lived your whole life and you're just getting to the settle down and, and holiday permanently and he walks out. That's not the same if you're 22, babe. <laughs> I find that so interesting because I think it's a lot about sports programmes because there's this real obsession with youth in the sort of sports punditry, I don't know what you'd call it, genre at the moment where everything has to be like youthful and cool and I, I I get it because I love Alan Shearer and Gary Lineker and whoever I don't love Alan Shearer actually I think he's really miserable but whatever <laughs> but I remember them as players so like there's mm. you know but I'm 39 so there's something for me but I sort of think if I was a 17 year old girl now and I turned on match of the day I'd be like I don't think this is for me who are these <laughs> boring old men right and I, I think that audience should be catered for, but I don't think that means that the people that watch Match of the Day should just be written off and, like, you know, mm. they still deserve to have Match of the Day 
to watch or whatever else. I just find that really odd that TV companies sort of willing to kind of fuck over their existing audience yeah. in a way. It's fascinating to me. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't work in TV. I don't see the numbers. I, I don't know. But it seems fascinating to me that you're like, oh, you know, these people who are 16 to 25 now are not always going to be 16 to 25. At some point, they are going yeah. to be the rest of us and too tired to scroll. They will want to put one thing on and for it to just be on for 45 minutes so they don't have to make any more decisions for the next 45 minutes. Like, none of us are watching TV because it's the pinnacle of human entertainment. We're putting it on because we're fucking exhausted and we just want to zone out for a bit. So I find it odd that you try and, like shimmy your entire entertainment world to this one nine-year age gap and ignore all of the other 60 years that exist past that, 70, 80 years that exist past that. I wasn't watching BBC One or BBC Two when I was 21. No. I didn't have a TV all the way through uni, but I watch it now. Like, yeah. come on, we'll let they'll get there. Just keep making good quality and it it gets there. But, hey... What do we know? What, what do we know? <laughs> that we've gone very off topic here, although it was an interesting chat. So Pivot is about, it's a book about netball. And you wrote a very funny joke, which you did. It was part of one of your shows at Edinburgh a few years ago. And you did a little bit of stand up in one of our shows in, in the same festival. It's about women learning to play netball and men learning to play football at school. And the kind of freedom that you get in football versus this ridiculous pivoting thing basically yeah. where you catch the ball and you can't <laughs> go anywhere with it you can just move one leg and I wondered did that sort of in a way inspire the book yeah it was all tied in in a really similar time I um I was gigging in Guildford and I was I think it was comparing and there was this big group of women there that were there on a netball social and I started just messing about with them doing a bit of audience interaction and sort of like chatting about all the rules of netball that I remembered, the chess pass and the balance pass and how stupid it was. And they were laughing. But then all the other women in the room, there was this amazing reaction to it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, it is this thing that I'd sort of forgotten about largely. And then I started working on the stand-up kind of idea. But I started writing all that and, and I was sort of thinking about how netball is such a waste of time and I think school's <laughs> different now like from what I understand now girls are allowed to learn football but definitely when I was at school we, we just wasn't an option we just had to do netball and the boys were all learning this game they could play at break time and then go home and watch on the tv and wear the t-shirts for and we were learning this game where you were like I can't name a netball player or collect netball stickers for my sticker album and swap the shinies or any of that and then so not only were you learning this game that was quite fun but was way more difficult and not able to be a social thing but then when you wanted to join in with the cultural phenomenon of football like those was it panini sticker albums and and talking about football you just got called like oh you don't even get it you don't know and you'd be like i try and watch sport on tv with my dad and no i didn't know but the boys were getting all this learning through school were being actively taught this socially helpful cultural touchstone and we weren't in and it just seems insane to me that we all just got screwed over like that like there are so many jobs you can do off the back of football even if you're not a player like I'm not suggesting that all the boys I went to school with became like <laughs> youth academy they did not but you could do loads of jobs off the back of football or you could have loads of 
just social help from it. Like you could just make friends via it. Whereas netball didn't offer those opportunities in the slightest. And it just seemed so unfair. Have you played netball since school? Good God, no. Because it's a big thing now. They do like lots of leagues. Our Mickey was in a uh, recreational netball league. So it's uh, it's a big thing in London anyway, I think, because we have a lot of Antipodeans in London and they are a bit nuts for netball. My girlfriends play it down here. There's about five or six of my girlfriends that play it in Brighton. I think it's Go Mammoth is one of the big netball league things. I've been down to watch them a few times because I was like, especially when I was writing Pivot, I was like, yeah, I want to get a vibe of what it's like and make sure I'm writing the league right. So I popped down and and watched them. But I, I think I joined in on one game where they were really short and there was this awful moment. So I was awful at it. I'm not a very good runner and I'm t- I'm not very tall. And um, I did intercept one pass and I was really proud of myself. And then it turned out that pass was from the referee back to one of the other players. (laughs) (laughs) And I just jumped in the way and stolen the ball. So I didn't go back after that. I mean, it's about netball. It's set in in the context of a netball team, but it's not really about netball. It's about friendship, isn't it? And it's about teams. And I suppose I was thinking about it because obviously like your friendship groups kind of are like your team. I just wondered why you decided to sort of look at it in that context? It was mainly because I wanted to write a book about a lot of women without them working in the same place or all having had children together. I have struggled to conceive ever, so don't have children. And so I find a lot of stuff where it's like, we're all mums, a bit triggering, and it's just something I don't really want to read and something I'm a bit, like, done with, the idea that women are either mums or not mums. And then I was like, workplace sitcoms and books have just been a bit done. And a lot of like women's holiday book fiction is like, you know, they work in a cupcake bakery together. And <laughs> and, and I love those kind of books. Like I've read a million of them. They're yeah. my favourite, but it's been done. And then I sort of thought like, I don't, I don't know. I've never read personally a sports coming together book about women. And I sort of thought, like, I've watched Coach Carter and more recently Hustle and, you know, Ted Lasso and, and all these different shows and stuff where there gets to be a team of very different men coming together via sport. So why not do the same for women? You don't actually describe yourself as a particularly sporty person, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. And yet you have <laughs> you have written two books <laughs> in a way about sport. What's going on, Laura? I know, it's really stupid, isn't it? <laughs> no, nothing about becoming a writer has happened the way I thought it would. I think, though, they're sports books for people that aren't sporty. Like, the clock book is definitely a little bit like your book we were talking about before we started recording with Charlton, like, where it is about Charlton, but you don't have to know it or know any of the details to love it because it's about people. Like, the clock book was just about, well, for me, like, wishing I was this way more confident person than I actually am and then with the netball it's more that nostalgia for that world of netball and that school thing and the frustrations of it and just wanting a space where you can just be yourself that maybe sport provides and leaning into being bad at something like not giving it up because you're bad at it like going yeah I'm bad at it but I'm having a good time fuck off (laughs) carrying on doing it 
which is not something I often have the confidence to do. But it was nice to write people that were learning to have that confidence. I think when you're an adult and you're like quite competent and you do a job and you do it sort of relatively well and whatever, you just sort of expect to be able to do things. (laughs) And then you try them and you're like, oh, I'm shit at this. (laughs) I'm really shit at this. But I think it's about like learning to accept that you don't have to be good at something to enjoy it. I think there's something really freeing in that to be like, actually, this is fun. A hundred percent. One of the biggest things I ever did for myself and one of the biggest luxuries I spend money on is, so back in 2016, 17, I had quite a serious mental problem um, over not being able to conceive and climate change and sort of wanting to have a baby, but worrying about climate change and then not being able to conceive over three years anyway. And I got myself a personal trainer because I was so sick of my body and I was so sick of being sad and anxious and like all the physicalities that come with anxiety. And I was so angry with my body for not making a baby. And and I got myself a personal trainer. And so I learned how to do exercise in a way that didn't need to be coordinated or competitive with anybody other than myself. Didn't have to look pretty or achieve a goal like exercise for exercise's sake and so I do a lot of weightlifting and boxing and circuits now just on my own with my trainer and it's my biggest luxury because one she makes me do it like I've set an appointment with someone so I have to do it I can't like diddle myself out of that achievement and two like everything I do is just about pick that up and put it back down again instead of get past that woman and so whether I do or not is some sort of failure or success it's just me and her and and we've always said with each other my goal in my first year I never set a goal of like I'm going to be able to lift x amount or I'm going to be whatever weight or anything like that it was like just this time next year I want to still be having weekly sessions and I still do it now like this week on Monday my session I was doing circuits and my anxiety was awful and I just started crying like halfway through the circuit because I was just overwhelmed so we stopped doing it timed and it was like but we're still going to finish the session we're just going to do it in our own pace and so there's something really beautiful I think about using your body in a way you've maybe not had the opportunity to before and and how freeing that can be to see the other things your body can do that you you'd never like given it its due for before so laura pivot is out now published on june the 23rd it's publication day as we speak so obviously you're going to be quite focused on that at the moment and, and doing the sort of promotional rounds with pivot but i wondered have you got anything else coming up that you can tell us about because obviously stand up and you, you had a podcast for a while national treasures are you are you yeah. at the edinburgh festival this year were you i'm not in edinburgh this year no i'm back on the podcasting train so the fourth series of national treasures starts at the beginning of august so we're kicking off with ed burns sending us to the imperial war museum in duxford and then richard herring sending us to cheddar gorge so we're back doing that from August onwards. And then from July the 4th onwards, I'm launching a new podcast, which Ooh. is my long-suffering baby brother is trying to teach me the GCSE science syllabus. 
because um, <laughs> my brother is a wonderful human being and I love him to bits and he's always been so supportive of my comedy stuff and he loves comedy. So we've always chatted a lot of comedy. But he studied molecular biology at university and loves science mm. and whenever he tries to share anything of interest in science I have no idea what he's talking about so we decided to to try and get me to a scientific point where I can follow a conversation with him I don't think I've ever worked on a project before where I've been happier but more furious because it makes no sense to me, most of what he's telling me about. So if you want a, a sort of sweary, sciencey sibling rivalry podcast in your ears, Lex Education starts on the 4th of July. Okay, so Laura, Pivot is out now. It's published by Two Roads and it is available in all good bookshops and online. And where can we follow you on social media to find out what you're up to? Oh gosh, I think I have different handles on everything I'm on. I'm Laura Lex with two X's on Twitter, Lex Laura on Instagram, Laura Lex Comedian on TikTok and Facebook and Laura Lex Comedy on YouTube. Oh my God, you're on TikTok. Wow. I am. I'm I'm very fresh and modern. Jim. Well, yeah, I mean, you're obviously pitched <laughs> at the right age group. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Laura, and all the best with the book. Thanks, Jen. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we fire a blistering ace at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Of course, I'm talking about Wimbledon, which started properly on Monday. I was thinking, as I watched Emma Raducanu play yesterday, an act which has inspired my two-year-old to ask for a tennis racket. I was thinking, that's a bit old school that they still call the women's draw the ladies' draw, isn't it? Look, I'm not personally bothered by the term ladies. As I've said before on this very podcast, don't at me, there are just other hills I'd rather die on. But I do recognise that lots of women do not share this view with me and the term lady is not one that they enjoy. And then today I saw another story about Wimbledon and how its all-white dress code, which has existed since the Victorian era, disproportionately impacts on female players. Why? Because of the age-old sporting and indeed societal taboo, the old crimson wave, or if you prefer, and I do, periods. On Twitter, pundit David Law, who co-hosts the tennis podcast with Catherine Whitaker, said in 25 years he was embarrassed to say that the issue of periods being a factor in why the top seeds have unpredictable results on the women's draw had never occurred to him. Dude, I've been having periods for 26 years and I was today years old when this occurred to me. So, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. Former tennis pro Monica Puig responded to the tweet, not to mention the mental stress of having to wear all white at Wimbledon and praying not to have your period during those two weeks. Another issue which had only ever fleetingly occurred to me, but more in the context of women roller skating in white jeans on body form adverts. That must absolutely suck. Not just the adverts, I mean. Because if it's still considered proper to call women ladies at Wimbledon, I can only imagine how springing a sanitary leak would go down. I mean, it is batshit that we're even talking about this in the year 2022, but there you have it. We've all listened to the Bush Telegraph today, right? It is so boring that we're still expected to behave as if our basic bodily functions are shameful, but even worse, that we're then put in ridiculous situations where said shameful functions are even more likely to reveal themselves. Fuck the patriarchy, fuck them today, and indeed, every day. 
And while we're doing that, let's look at some good Wimbledon news. It's Tuesday afternoon as I record this and as ever, I cannot see into the future. But if you're listening to this on Wednesday morning, I will still just about be in date. Emma Raducanu, who was looking a bit sketchy before the tournament with various setbacks and injuries and not really knowing whether or not she'd play, she won her first round match against Alison van Ertvank and she's through to the second round. She'll play Caroline Garcia on Wednesday. Garcia's on good form at the moment. She just won a title and has a good, strong serve, so she could well test Raducanu. Now, I've seen a lot of chat about Raducanu recently. Is she focused on tennis? Has her head been turned by Tiffany sponsorships and Met Gala invitations? I'm not going to say they wouldn't say this about a man because people do regularly say it about, for example, Marcus Rashford, but I am going to say it's a bit boring. As oft discussed, the women's draw is unpredictable. She broke through literally a year ago, this time last year, at the age of 18. She's very young and this is a lot of pressure. She has a whole career ahead of her. And I just think the thing that she had at last year's Wimbledon and last year's US Open was that she played in such a carefree way, like it was genuinely joyful for her. And that was, in turn, a joy to watch. I'd really like to see her keep that. Andy Murray is also through to the second round after beating Jack Duckworth. He dropped the first set, then seemed to power up after winning the second. I really, really would love to see him make it to the third round, but I think beating 20th seed John Isner will be a tall order. I'm hoping to catch some of the wild cards. One of the great things about Wimbledon is that you get to see some of the lesser known names in British tennis through the wild cards. And remember, Radikani was a wild card at Wimbledon last year, so it is always worth checking them out. That's all from me this week, and I will be back next time with more women's sport. Standard issue for all women.